We are I. Alright everybody, so we're back, and we're back with Suhail here, and Susan obviously sitting beside us here as well, but uh, what I learned over the break here is that even she is uh, hearing some stories for the first time too, so that's one thing I find amazing about, you know, like this podcast and like just these conversations is, you know, we reconnect ourselves back, you know, with with stories inside ourselves that maybe we forget, but even people close to us, we open up to them a little bit more, and this is firsthand there. So um, our adventure has led us to Africa. We're we're going to work with the pygmies right now, and Sahil, you're you're back on. Yes, yes, yes. Um, I'm quite uh, fascinated when human beings we share our stories with each other because we learn so much from each other's stories. And I feel that you know most of the time I looked at kind of the story of my own life, and I look at it and I say. This is the story of the human beings. has nothing to do with me. I happen to step up and say that I'm a volunteer. I'm willing to be one of the human beings who are going to experience that. It, it has nothing to do with, with that you are pre-selected. No, you select yourself. There's nobody else who is saying that you are better than the other or you are more smart, smarter than the other. It's anybody who says that I am willing to step up in the path of service. I am willing to do it. And the moment that you open, it's like a boat, that you open your sail, the wind is there. The wind will actually take you where you want to go. Without the wind, you will get nowhere. It's the same thing with human beings. We have to open up our sail and say, here I am, I am ready to serve. And then suddenly you find yourself into an amazing, amazing road of discoveries and things like that because you said, I am willing to open up, I'm willing to serve. And to me, my experience of life is exactly like that. I just said, I'm ready. I have no clue where I would do, what, where I will end up to be doing, if I will survive, not. I didn't care about it. I wanted to be of service and that's it. So that was amazing stories happen that I cannot even believe myself that this happened, but it happened. And because of that, I decided later on to keep some records of it. And because it's so overwhelmingly exciting to know that human being, we have been given so much potentiality, so much power. We just have to release that potential that is in each and every one of us. Mm-hmm. All of us, we have been given a supercomputer, which is our brain, and the whole year that we spend is how am I going to use that computer that I have on my head inside me with all its capacity and its potentialities, how am I going to use it? Because it's all available. It's to us, it's our gift, it's our belonging. Nobody else owns my brain. And each one of us, we are that brain. We have the capacity, the potential. So the question is that, what am I going to do to actually release that potential? And this is where the path of service comes in. When you move into the path of service, you are releasing your potential. And this is what I'm just sharing that, that this is not me 
sharing here. It's not me. I'm not. I'm not. I didn't do it out of ego. I did it because I wanted to serve, and then out of that path of service, amazing things happen. So I'm going to share a few things that happen and well, how it happened. Yeah, and I think we see that too because you know, like when when this man crossed your path in Quebec, you know, it wasn't that he was like, you know, hail, you know, I have this this you know, this incredible job, you know, it's a quarter million dollar year salary, you know, with, with benefits and, you know, bonuses and, you know, you just need to come to Africa and, you know, help us, you know, um, you know, like forge a path to be able to conquer these challenges. It wasn't that at all. It was completely the opposite. opposite. Asking you to be able to walk away from like your dream and like what could have happened because of that. And, you know, so when you, when you have, you have the absolute right to talk with authority on the subject of being able to like offer yourself, you know, to other human beings. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And and you will be surprised that I never looked for money, but money came to me. Mm -hmm. I didn't go for money, but money came. And I will tell you some example of how this happened. Is that, for example, okay, after we arrived in, in Africa, uh, in Congo, then from Kinshasa, which is the, the, the capital, we flew to Kisangani, where the pygmies live. And uh, so we wanted now to get in touch with the pygmies. They told us, oh, it's 381 kilometers down the forest. That's where they are cutting most of the forest and the, the area that is being devastated. So um, we went to buy a bicycle. We were very, you know, simple-minded. We thought that we will, uh, you know, cross the forest with a bicycle. And the forest is not an easy task. This is the, the largest. This is, uh, with the Amazon, they are the same size. And actually, the Itui forest is bigger than the Amazon. So it's a huge forest in Africa, the central of Africa. Anyway, so we were simple. We had no experience, young. <laughs> so we went to a, a shop to buy a... a, a a bicycle and we ended up with a huge motorcycle for cross country <laughs> that's how simple sometimes you, you you don't know anyway we we bought that motorcycle and um, I had never driven a motorcycle and no clue <laughs> so it took us few going into the ditches here and there learning uh, the, how to run and anyway so we ended up um, preparing ourselves for this long trip and we didn't know when we will come back. We know that we are going one way, but we didn't know when we come back and how it's going to be unfold. So we arrived finally at the kilometer 381 where the whole story starts. And uh, we see the first pygmies. And I didn't speak the language. I didn't speak the Swahili language and they didn't speak French too because uh, Zaire, Congo, is French-speaking. But in the village, there are always people who speak French because it's a, it was a, a Belgium colony and they, they spoke French. Um, so through some local uh, translator, we tried to communicate and explain that I'm coming from Canada and I'm here to serve. How can I help? And they look at me, this strange man. They had never seen a white man in their whole life. First of all, a lot of people came and touched my skin to see whether the color was 
would you know would go off because they thought that maybe under the white skin there was a black skin mm. so that i had colored and other people my wife also was very blonde so they will touch her and say so basically it was a shock for them to see and then we had images with us we showed them some images and they look under the image, turn the pages to see if the man who is in the image, is it double-sided, is it a real person? So, I mean, that was the level of tribal cultural things for them. It was so fresh because they had not been in civilization to that level in which they had seen other things. They were living in a forest for 5,000 years, and that's why the hut, they build very makeshift uh, you know branches and so on and they live into that and they move hunting continuously with uh, during the season they're very but nomadic they're very very nomadic but this is tropical and so the temperature is always the same and um, so they move uh, from one location to the other where the animals are where their lives are the, the decisions so on. anyway it was the, my first encounter of course with the pygmies and uh, then the day in the morning, we were at the border of the forest, and they told us that you have to go deep into the forest. That's where the major problem is taking place. So we said uh, they were cutting already. There was early stages of cutting. It was not yet deep enough. Um, and then um, at that time, my wife, uh, Monique had uh, suddenly a very pain, a tremendous pain. There was a kind of stone in, in her kidney and it was so painful that we could do nothing. And so we needed medical attention. And at the same time, I had cut my, I didn't know how to use machete, you know, <laughs> knives. So I had cut my finger and they, it was bleeding. And I had tried with bandages, and because of the humidity, it would not stop. The, the, it, you could see it. Yeah. That, that's right. It was horrible. And it was very painful. So I showed them, said that we need attention. <laughs> so they said, no problem. Basically, very simple. And they said, well, we have a hospital in the middle of the forest. I said, hospital? I said, well... The, the translation was misunderstood. We thought it's a hospital, but anyway, they say, we take you first to see the, the, the place where we are. So now this uh, young man who was a translator uh, from French to Swahili language, uh, he would uh, guide us. And then they cut some kind of, with machete, some openings, some holes into the forest because it was so dense. We entered the forest. And after about maybe half an hour of walking through the branches and trees and so on, we arrived and the, the, the translator said, do you see pygmies? They're all over you. And I'm looking, I cannot see a single pygmy. And I said, but where are they? they said, well, look on top of that tree behind that branch. Oh, look at here, look at there. And I saw they're all over the trees, hidden. And uh, they are, because they had never seen a white man, they had never, they were so afraid. And, but they were all around us and we were not seeing them, but they were all watching us. What but, an experience that must have been. It was unbelievable. Wow. Yeah. So basically, and then we told them that we needed help. 
And then the chief came and he said, well, one of the local had learned traditional medicine in that environment. And he said that they have specialized people who treat different type of illnesses. So for example, they look at your spit. If it's a dry spit or wet spit, I don't know the difference, but they knew. <laughs> Whether the bite from snake was from outside, from this part of the body or what, they had all kinds of, of medical way of judging uh, your, your sickness. And then based on that, they would say that, oh, that tree over there, that's the solution. And they had a dog. And they will sniff, give the something to sniff the dog. For example, they took some of uh, um, my blood uh, thing, had, uh, you know, uh, swollen. And they, 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 they give it to the dog and the dog sniffs and so on. Then the dog starts to run. And then the pygmies were running behind the dog and then it would stop and then the pygmies will climb the tree and then they will get some nuts and herbs from the local. So anyway, they gathered kind of their pharmacy stuff <laughs> and they brought it to us. And then for my wife, um, they scratch the here tiny bit, the skin, and then they put some drops of some um herbs on that and then they said that she eats some kind of nuts and herbs and say that well tonight it will be over and said well this is now four or five days it's getting worse and said don't worry it will be clear for me they said uh, the man was uh, one of the pygmies just turned around took one root took a, a plant and its roots and with a knife man-made uh, kind of uh, looking knife he scraped the root of that plant and put it on my um, wound and took a leaf and make a bandage and he says that tonight this is going to pull all the kind of putrefaction, all the negative things in your blood, and it would hurt a lot, but then tomorrow this will be dry, and it will be closed, cicatrica. And so, well, this is now one week, it's bleeding, and it's, it's horrible, and it's real thing. So I said, okay, and exactly what he said. By the way, they, they, they had little wood, um, they had tree, uh, little huts made of um, branches and they had some mud over the branches and so that was the hut that you would sleep in um, there was no bed there was some kind of uh, uh, very very uh, hard stuff on the floor and there were a lot of ants <laughs> during at night um, so we would we, we, we were trying to, to sleep at the same time, but then the hurting of the, this uh, thing that they had done. So we managed to have a few hours of sleep out of uh, exhaustion. And so in the morning we wake up and exactly that thing had dried. My 
cut had dried and um, I felt a, a, a tremendous self relief and Monique had was feeling slowly they said it takes about a week before the stone is completely dissolved and uh, they they gave us the biggest challenge we had at that time is that they honored us so much being foreigner white skin kind of <laughs> uh, they gave us antelopes antelopes from the forest that they will chase they will catch and then they would give us meat only and we started to really hate because too much meat and that's the only thing we were begging for kind of some vegetables something <laughs> but for them it was an honor to have meat so they thought that that's it but anyway we managed to because they themselves they eat uh, fruits from the trees they eat uh, you know everything that is they, they, they collect it the whole food is around them every tree everything is 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 their food the source of food uh, so they know naturally where to get their vegetable sources we didn't know so they were bringing us but anyway it was an amazing experience so we recovered after after that and um, because we had the motorcycle and we were traveling to visit more of the pygmies to consult with them how we could help them um, but I just want to like because this is this is a very big part of like what I'm extremely passionate about because like like Western medicine has had some incredible advancements and there's there's no denying that it's helped us to a certain extent you know but what irritates me like I, I feel like there's a very big difference between a vaccine and healthcare you know and that's where like you know I know there's like you know you know, brilliant men like, you know, Chris Kressler and, you know, like these guys that I talk about, like we actually do not have healthcare. We have disease management, you know, and like that's the problem. And like when you talk about something as simple as, you know, being able to step out your what should be or well, not even say what should be a door, but when you just walk outside of your hut or like you just you're in your natural environment, there's there's the things that we have always needed. They've always been there, you know, and they've been through like, you know, the the pygmies and their traditional medicine, you know, ancient Chinese medicine, like they're like all these cultures that have been around again for like, you know, thousands of years that have used this to be able to, you know, you're going through excruciating pain for like a week, you know, and like, and you have the same thing, this pain and like, it's, it's that easy and it's that simple and like, that's healthcare. Yes. And I, I have to tell you now how the healthcare works. Oh my God. Oh my God. Oh my God. Okay. So basically, um, what we saw is that they had little huts, as I was explaining, with branches and mud. And they were peeping, people all in these huts. And these people were actually coming from the capital city of Kinshasa. They had walked into that forest and they had been there. So I asked them, what are you doing here? He said, well, we went to the hospital that they have established. The hospital told us we, we have terminal illnesses and we will never cure. And so they say, we came to the traditional and we are actually living out. We have been completely here through that local medicine. 
And then I said, how do you compensate? How do you pay them? He says, well, there is a box there and there's no fee attached to it. You pay according to your own feeling of well-being. If you feel good and happy, you pay whatever you want. If you feel you're not happy, that's it. You don't have to pay anything. You are the guest of the universe. You are the guest of all this gift that has been given to humanity. You are part of the receiver. But if you want to give, there is a box there. You put whatever, the way that you feel, that's how you pay. So basically, it was an extraordinary experience to see that, oh my God, they have a system. And so that money is being used for different needs that they have. So that was the healthcare system. And everybody was under this collective healthcare, self-help uh, system. So it was extraordinary. But just like, and I find like the, the extraordinary part behind it, like, you know, through like a time-lapse view of generations, I would love to be able to understand like how people even came up with these strategies. Like how did it ever incorporate the, the dog? Like, you know, we can kind of have a general idea now, but who started that and how? And like what's the, the system like? And this tree, this root, like, because you would you would naturally assume if you put something on a, like a laceration, and then also you go through excruciating pain. You'd be like, oh, I'm not gonna do that again. But like there's a there's a point in time where somebody recognized the value of that. And like, you know, how does somebody even figure out back then that there's the value of eliminating the bacterial infection by closing the wound, going through the process of finding out like what root does that then, you know, pulls all this, you know, like bacteria and virus like out of your body that's accumulated from having this open laceration. Yeah going through that process and going right through to healing and then that just become globally accepted as like this is what we do for lacerations now. <laughs> right. And what they probably have is like different roots for different degrees of lacerations exactly. and how long exactly. you've had it for oh, yeah. and like how you're infected. Like oh, it's yeah. just, it's astonishing to me. It, it, I it, love it, it. it. You know, I think there is a human instinct and there's the animal instinct. Animal instinct is more perceptive than human instinct. <laughs> so relying on animals to help us to know what their the, the antennas are far more advanced than we are. So mm -hmm. therefore, the, for areas that they kind of miss the judgment, they give it to the animal world to help them. And there is such a symbiosis, a relationship between elements that the, rela the relationship is very profound. And uh, uh, very strangely, all the other population were polygams, mm -hmm. whereas the pygmies were monogams. And that's very interesting in this yeah. population. You know, they had monogamy, whereas the other. And also another thing that was very interesting. That is really interesting because that's a religious concept. Like that's not really like a, a primal concept, I don't think. But I don't know, but they, yeah. they were monogam uh, and they had um, very interesting women were the leaders uh, as leading the, yep. the, the decision maker, the big decision maker. You or, just made a lot of friends. So you just <laughs> made a lot of friends. <laughs> Especially in today's day and age, there's just people like, speak on, speak on. <laughs> so um, one thing was very unusual for me, truthfulness was the most unbelievable character of the pygmies. 
and because we lived with them for about six months, eight months, we, we were living both in the village and among the pygmies at the border because we, we didn't have the capacities to live the condition they live. <laughs> so we lived in the village, which was a tiny bit attached to that, to that area, and uh, which was slightly uh, more kind of friendly to our body. <laughs> Adjustment. I like how you say slightly. <laughs> <laughs> so basically, uh, um, one man said what I call a white lie to his wife. For a reason, he was trying to reduce something that had happened. I don't know exactly what. And so he said that white lie the day after which is something very rare, I never heard, but he had committed suicide because he could not bear the burden of having, say, a lie. And to me, it was a tragic. And that man, I loved him so much. And I often, when I say my prayer, I think of him and I send him my prayers for the next world so that he will... But I'm just saying that this population they had achieved such a level of spiritual elevation that they could not accept a lie in their life. Which is so foreign to Western culture. It's just all like facade and lies and a house of cards. You yes. know, like it's just like, could you imagine like that would be as, as simple as like your wife walking into the bedroom <laughs> and being like, what do you think of this dress on me? And you're like, fantastic. <laughs> you know, then like that equates to you committing suicide the yeah. next day if you didn't but authentically believe that. Like, that that was a uh, very, um, anyway, uh, so that was uh, a tragic element that I left me very much shocking uh, since uh, Africa. Okay, after that, we ask the pygmies, and basically, out of the forest, they had no means of survival because their natural environment in which they had always grown, and uh, so they had to live out of the forest among the villagers. The pygmies are called Bambute, the villagers are called Bantu, and the Bantu tribe had to agree to give some land to the pygmies so that they can live together in the surrounding. So the idea, we went to the Bantu people, to the villagers, and told them that we will give you education against land for the pygmies. Would you accept? And for them, education is so prized. It's such a high value that they say, wow, if we get education, our children will get education, we will get knowledge. That is the greatest value we could have. Yes, they are welcome. They can have pieces of land. So each of these villagers, they accepted to give a piece of land and they accepted to educate the pygmies of how to grow corn, how to grow cabbages, how to grow um, black beans and uh, all the beans, how to grow cassava, which are the staple food of the local people. And so, Slowly and slowly, a, 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 level, a level of education started both for the villagers and the pygmies. Mm -hmm. And uh, as part of the belief of um, my faith, women play a, 
very important role in the education system. So if a man and a, a family has two kids and they don't have the financial means to educate both, they have to give preference to the girl. Become, she becomes the mother and the educator of the next generation. If you teach a woman, she will teach the whole family because she's so close to the baby in their childhood that very early that education will be given to everybody. But if you teach a man, <laughs> then he may not be as close to the babies, to the children, and he may not be able to share it the same way that the woman do, does. So basically, we started education of the women. But we developed a technology, a method called functional literacy. Functional literacy is when you ask the villagers, what are the 10 key words that are most important to your life? For example, they say avocado. So we don't teach them how to only read and write avocado. The idea is how do you grow avocado? How do you stock avocado? How do you sell avocado? How do you market avocado? How do you <laughs> cultivate it in a larger volume? How do you transport it? And how do you write it? So it's functional to the need of everything related to that word. But they also learn about agriculture. They learn about primary health care. They learn about uh, um, kind of uh, commercial, commercialization. So they learn all the aspects in that work. So very soon, within a, a year and a half, two years, over 3,000 women learned how to read and write. And how did that happen is that because there were so many villagers around that area that and th there was a big challenge that we didn't know. The moment somebody learns how to read and write and they are younger generation, they abandon the village and they go and move into the city. So we decided, we found that if we educate people, all the young people will be leaving the village. That's not a good thing. <laughs> so the idea was to educate the younger people who are more apt to learn faster the uh, literacy and the education system to give them only a tiny bit of edge knowledge, more than the illiterate. So they were, they were half literate and totally illiterate, you know? So the education level was given into a level in which they will have a tiny bit more advanced than the others so that everybody will grow together. And then that suddenly transformed the villagers because it was training the trainers rather than training people directly. Mm -hmm. So suddenly a mass, and they were so fond of education. For them, education was the most important thing that they would sacrifice anything. And the teacher had such a station that you would be considered like, like almost the highest level of recognition. And so the teachers were pampered with food, <laughs> with uh, gifts, with everything, because the teacher was now suddenly. And so these little guys who were becoming the teachers, the, the, the new teachers, were highly respected. So everybody wanted to be a teacher. So they were exerting themselves to learn fast so that they would have that little edge on the others. And so the whole training was organized 
in a manner that masses and masses and masses and masses got training. And then the training passed on within three, four years, total poverty eradicated completely. They had food, they had agriculture, they had health, they had so much advances. Now, where we would get the knowledge? I had no knowledge about farming. But then we discovered that there's a lot of non-governmental organization in this area. So we invited the non-governmental organizations. Oh, you have training on farming? Okay, you are welcome. Come to those villages. And so we will invite all these people who had training and expertise to come from the big cities to come to these villages. And we'll organize the transport to come to the village. And suddenly the masses around this started to have education, training, knowledge. They started to have agriculture that were extremely proficient and it was a transformation and thanks God we have videos oh, of 40 wow. years ago what happened wow. and I will explain how the video came in is that's long time ago 35 years ago to have a but video is unbelievable so what happened is that as we were progressing women didn't have much time because there was so much agriculture, so much hard work, collecting water, ponding the food, transformation of food into meals. It was taking enormously, it was very exhausting. So um, they asked if there was any time that they could have free to educate their children. And the only way was to bring electricity. Now imagine, you are in a place that had total poverty, famine, and they had no challenge. They had all the challenges of the world, and now they want electricity <laughs> as a solution yeah. to help out the, 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 the transformation of the food, the, the water, you know. So And it's like, you know, something that like all cultures have gone through, but just at a hyper accelerated rate. That's right. You know, like you, you yeah. see it like all within side 10 years of that's like... Right. You know, that's, like all the what took like, you know, decades of advancement to be able right. to go through. And like yeah. you see, like you've given these people like opportunity to be able to understand like what's a value to them and how they need to get to the next step and what's the valuable next step. And, you know, like you, you see it and it has led you all the way to like this remote tribe wanting electricity. That's right. That's right. And so, um, well, you know. Because I had resources that were from the Baha'i community, because there were communities of my own faith that were there. So we call on their resources to be part of the education system. They themselves were extremely poor. They themselves had the same challenges that anybody else. So it was all together. But the question was unity. What made all these projects work? is that people were united. And unity gives strength. Unity gives powers that are beyond this world. Through the power of unity, you attract the blessing. You attract attention. You, att you attract everything. Because unity is the most, I would say, potent force on this earth that we live in. Actually, when they ask Einstein, what is love? He says, it's the power 
that keeps all the atoms together. That was his definition of love. Love and unity attract this power. And each atom of the universe is <laughs> attracted by that power of unity and love. And so human beings is the same thing. The moment that unity comes in, suddenly it flourishes. And that's exactly what the, the role our role was to bring unity, cooperation, consultation, discussions among the tribes themselves, among the pygmies. How can we do that? The knowledge, the wisdom of all these years that they have accumulated was brought together. You know, not individualism, but collectively, the knowledge of this, the knowledge of that, and all that, and also bringing um, knowledge, technology knowledge, scientific knowledge from the non-government organization that were there, they had never access to the villagers because they would go to the villagers and nobody would listen to them <laughs> because those villagers had no unity. Or one group would learn something and will exploit the other group. It was, so it was designed so that the knowledge was given under the condition that they will themselves go and spread the knowledge to the next village. And then that village will take that knowledge to the next village. And then a chain reaction of knowledge would start, village to village, village to village. So we were just initiating the action and the cooperation and and then they would learn that. And their duty was to go and transfer the knowledge to the next village and raise up. The, the. So that experience was kind of transforming villagers. And so basically for electricity, I have a picture here. That was... But, like, I, I know from the engineering standpoint that <laughs> it is, like, amazing what you're about to show me. I know people can't see this picture, but do you even comprehend, like, how... Like, you, you blow through it. Like, you don't understand how profound it is what you did. Like, you... I Like, I just feel like you, you, you missed the connection or were you... Like, people have come and tried to do what you guys did unsuccessfully many, many times, but you you guys created a system that created a thriving community and a network, and, like, like that, that's not easy, like, at all. It's like, not, not easy, no, but... But, like, the magnitude, I, like, I, I just, I, I feel like I want you to, like, just jump out of your chair with self-appreciation for the magnitude of what that actually represents. Like it, it's yes. astonishing. Yes. You know uh, what you say is so true, and this is why, um, because of the magnitude of what had happened, um, when we built, after we built the first little electrification. And, and you are going to see how the magnitude is reflected. We built a tiny little waterfall because in, in the forest and in the area, it was a lot of little waterfall because it's a tropical forest. So the rain is common and it's very humid. And so there's always water running. So by putting a little bit of simple um, kind of... Um, Electrification. Electrification is actually, okay, it's basically building a tiny little dam by, with stones and then directing that into pipes. I, I will explain where we got the pipes. 
<laughs> so then the pipes are bringing the pressure of the water into a turbine. And I will explain how we did the turbine. <laughs> we melted pop cans. We melted into the sand uh, shapes that then we build into the sand kind of shape of a mold. The sand becomes the mold. And then we pour in a pop can, we melt aluminum, and then we put in, and it takes the shape of the sand, and that becomes, and then we use that. And of course, there are some materials in Africa that are available. You have plates, you have uh, machines that you can find here and there, laid machine, you can find it. It's not something that, you know, the village is advanced to some degree. The, the, I mean, the towns are advanced. The villagers are less, but the towns are. So they are access to some kind of little machinery and tools. So we use those machines to build the first turbine, little turbine. And this was purely experimental. You're see. melting pop cans into the sand. Like it's clearly experimental. <laughs> Where it's like... It, it's mind-boggling. Like it, it, it's astonishing. I just like I just it, it's. I I don't even know what to say. <laughs> Could I just interject something yes, here because yeah. I think this was the idea was not expecting things from outside, but to use the resources that they had and to know that through education they could do anything. So often aid is in the form of we give you this. We, you know, it's the idea of um, give a man a fish and you, you know, you feed him for a day, teach a man to fish and he can feed himself and his family for a lifetime. So it was using the resources they had. So they're not always looking outwardly for the answers, but using the resources that they had. That's right. That's right. Yeah. So, so basically, um, we, um, this, this electrification, um, I recall that we experimented with this, how would I say, extremely simple way to bring some kind of what you call a water turbine. It's a hydromechanical power. Basically, it's like a small water wheel that is under pressure and rotates very fast. And then that water wheel that is turning, you attach it to what is called a hammer mill, <laughs> which is basically some floating hammers, uh, wings that are rotating at very fast speed. And you put your grain, it crushes, and then you, you have instant uh, powder. So basically, the technology is, is quite simple to make it in an environment that has no technology <laughs> backing is a challenge but then the villagers I realized that they are very fast at learning extremely fast and they were all barefoot but I was calling them barefoot engineers because the pygmies and the other villagers they they had they didn't they didn't have means they were barefoot and they were building this hydropower station and I was so amazed by it and actually so what happened is that after I built the first little waterfall with a turbine, I wrote 11 letters. Now, this is in 1977, 78. That's a long time ago. 
that's 40 years ago. I wrote, now you are in the middle of the forest of Ituri, which is the largest forest in Africa, and you are sending a letter, 11 letters to international organization. And I said, I am in the middle of the jungle. This is my name. And uh, I am an engineer and I'm here to serve the pygmies and the people. I am intending to build a small center of training for this population so that they can develop their own systems. But I need machineries, I need equipment, and I need $30,000 to build a facility in which we can buy tools and equipment so that they can learn how to grow their own technologies locally. And a month and a half later, to my total surprise, somebody showed up, found me in the forest, and he says, I am coming from Washington, D.C. And here I am. Wow, how did you come across the forest to find me? So I said, well, I asked the villagers, and here I am. And he said, I received your letter, and here it is. Your name, Sohel Matahede, it's a very strange name. You must be from Iran. Your name sounds very much Iranian. Yes, I am. And then you're very educated. And you are in the middle of nowhere and doing all this work here. So we decided that you must be a Baha'i. I said, why do you say I'm a Baha'i? There's nothing in the letter. This is because the way that you have done and the services, the spirit in which you have done, we know that you are a man of faith and that you put your faith into action because all along Africa, we have seen similar pattern. And so we decided in Washington, they that you must be a Baha'i. Are you a Baha'i? I'm totally surprised. Why he's asking me that? I said, yes, I am. He said, but we have a big problem. I said, what problem? He said, you have asked $30,000. We're a big international organization. We cannot help anybody less than $250,000. Would you accept $250,000? Wow. I said, why not? We can work it out. Don't worry. Yeah. <laughs> wow. I've been just getting like goosebumps the whole time. Like my eyes are well enough. I'm just like a wreck over here. Jeez. Believe me, it was a big, big, big surprise. Big surprise. And, uh, so we said, okay, we'll make the plan bigger than we expected, but we start organically. We start small, we educate the masses, and our method is that one village learn, and they learn and under the condition that only if they are willing to pass on the knowledge and the training to the next village, then we'll educate that village. If they say no, we say, sorry, we don't have time for you because our resources are not infinite. We have very limited resources. The village entirely has to agree that they will become trainers of the next village. So we started to train the first village. And then slowly and slowly, the pop can melting, the technology a little bit more advanced technology. So slowly and slowly, we ended up to have 20 villages that had electricity, extra. And these are electrification at the extremely rural. The wires are hanging. God knows there is no standard. 
of safety, yeah. but the electricity was not, it's just one bulb, a house. That's it, one bulb. That they are not allowed to have more than one animal because the whole purpose was to have electricity for education, but the machine during the daytime is called hydromechanical power. That means you take the power of the turbine to do agro-processing transformation, you know, food transformation and means that they can generate uh, food and resources for their own village. So at evening, they will divert that and they put a generator, a small electrical generator to the mechanical part they would put and that little generator would bring a little bit of electricity to the, to the houses. So we did that and because of the award of 250,000 US dollar, which 40 years ago, I counted recently and it's exactly $1 million today of Canadian. Wow. So in the middle of the jungle, we got that. And then they say that with it comes a video. We are going to film all how this happened and how the, 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 the technology has evolved. And also the video man said, I'm also going to video how the education system operates because that's also very interesting. So the, how they learn about functional literacy, how the pygmies who had never come out of the forest, now they know how to read and write. That was a revolution in the middle of that part because they thought that pygmies didn't have the brain because unfortunately they were called the animal of the forest by the other villagers. But here, they are. these people knew how to read and write. So there was such a unity and integration of the population. So that was basically, so after that one year, the villagers start to have some little light at night. Then the European economic community comes in a year later and they see this electricity tiny little bit here and there. And they say, do you mind if we give you $250,000 <laughs> and you put more electrification projects in the villages? So why not? And so a second, and that's how this electricity came into villages. That is just like the power of writing a letter. You that's know, right. Just like that's right. Out. And just, you know, the power of writing a letter, but just authentically being like pure to your heart. You know, because the, the type of person that you are and just the way that you wrote that letter, like people just, they knew where you're coming from. They knew your faith. They, 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 they understood you as a human being and traveled that far to that degree to be able to offer this opportunity but like it was really like an opportunity for what i presume would be thousands of people yes. you know like just yes. and like you you changed history in a in a region in the world like most people can't even inflict like change with inside their family or their social network and look what you've done and, and we're just scratching the surface that that was very exciting and I, I tell you because I had never expected that we will end up 500 villages 500 never, villages that's right were affected by all this project with wow. literature with literacy with agriculture with primary health care because the change reaction was not we were doing it we were training the trainers always 
we were never being engaged directly into one-to-one -one because it was too much, the masses, the need. Now, why the program was designed from the beginning with the training of the trainers is because jealousy can destroy. You know, if you give a well to one village, then everybody says, oh, the money came from Canada or from the US or from somebody else. So that means if I want to have a development in my village, I have to go for look for money from Canada for our village. Now people, instead of becoming empowered to go and develop their own resources, develop their own capacities, now they become beggars. And they, all attention is outwardly looking, looking for funds from outside. And this has been the history of the whole development world, is that they have been looking outwardly for help rather than looking inwardly through their own creative facilities. And the whole training was based on training of trainers so that they will not become beggars. They will become independent. And as a result of that, now we have thousands and thousands and thousands of villagers that have been empowered and that empowerment has continued since uh 40 years ago and like just the impact you know like in you know it, it's not even that you just you change this this region and like like these tribes and these communities and these villages like it, it's generations like there'll be generations of, of people, and there has been like generations since then that'll never know the adversity that the others had to go through, you know, because of people like you. I, I I'm I'm so happy that at least the, the occasion was given to do that, and I, that, that's what I'm I'm telling always the young people. Take like your, your, your humility take, just take drives your me bananas. Take, I just take. want you to say thank you. Like I know you're not going to, but I'm just like, and you don't have to, but just your the humility you have is is so genuine. It is unbelievable. But that was the the role. That's what I was telling you. Is that it's not. There's no me doing it. It's any human being who rises to do an effort, who does a service, the reward that he receives are far greater than his little effort that he has stood up to serve other people. The reward are beyond our imagination. I could have never thought that going to Africa will give me a, you know, somebody would show up with $250,000 40 years ago, $1 million, not once, but twice. I had never expected that. I was not doing it at all. And I'm basically saying, this is the lot of any human being. This has nothing to do with me. I am one of them who stood up into the path of service. You know what I'm saying? So basically I'm saying this is a path that is open to all of us. Not a single person on this planet Earth can say that, oh, I have not been given an opportunity to serve other people. We all have this possibility of standing up and say that I'm going to serve my mother, my sister, my uncle, my neighbor, my village, my neighborhood, my city, my country. Everybody can stand up and say, I'm going to extend myself. I'm going to open my wings 
and fly rather than walking like an airplane. You know, you are on the tarmac and you're rolling. No, why do you want to roll? You can fly. The only difference between rolling and flying is just that I'm going to serve. The moment that you say I'm going to serve, the flying starts because you have opened up your wings. And serving others is the solution. That's basically for Africa. Yes. Yeah, I just wanted to also add we never we shouldn't compare and say, Oh, that was so big I couldn't do anything like that. I think each one of us has a gift to bring. And I remember reading something that says, no one knows what's big or small in the eyes of God. So what's something that we think is huge may in fact not be, and something that's so little may be something big. We don't know. We just need to bring whatever gift, whatever we can do, and not compare it to anybody else. And we never know what that's going to mean to somebody else. You know, like it may seem so small and insignificant to us, but it could mean the world. It could change somebody's life. You know, and... and and it even like comes out to like I look at it now as it's, it's as simple as saying hi to people. Like it, it's amazing how many people when you're walking around they're just like, hey, you know, how's it going or how's your day today? It's like they're caught off guard. That's right. That's you know, right. but like it's like but to force somebody to question who they are as a person because you said hi to them and they're like, oh, that was strange. Why do you say hi to me? Yeah, like, well, are you or expecting like, something? <laughs> yeah, or like you hold the door open for somebody. Like all these things that are like extremely simple, but they, they force people to take action in their own lives. And it That's can right. be something as small as that because, you know, like there's not a lot of us who are going to be able to do something to the magnitude that you've done. But like if we just – if we start tilting those dominoes over, like where is it going to get to? be the person that gets to be the next you because that's that's all your parents did when they decided to move from Iran like like it, again like th this is the trickle down effect of them deciding to uproot your entire family out of an, an extremely privileged lifestyle mm -hmm. and that's this right. is the result you know like it's yes. just yes. It, it's staggering yes. you know there is what is called the ripple effect you bring a smile to anyone that day may have completely changed for that person because you brought them a smile. Maybe they were so challenged by their daily stuff that that smile suddenly changes the direction completely of what they were going to do because you have given them joy. Joy brings wing. Joy gives powers that are beyond this world. So bringing a little bit of help joy support service gives other people capabilities and the replication of that has tremendous tremendous effect there's a movie video called life after life by a psychologist called dr moody and he has looked at uh, the life of 3000 people who had near-death experience and he wrote a book and in that he explained that those who actually passed away clinically they came back and they recount the story of their life in the next world. And then they came back. Some people died actually for a day and a half, according to the records that they have. Clinically, they were dead. There was a man, a Russian, who was killed by the KGB because he wanted to go to the US. He was killed on his road to the airport. They were going a day and a half later, they were going to open his stomach to check the cause of death and autopsy. And then he woke up. And then 
they let him go because they were so afraid of this man who was dead and now is alive again. So he record his memories of what happened in the next life. And one of the reasons why I share that story is that, that that video, you can get it on YouTube. It's called Life After Life. And he shared the story of his life. And it's astonishing the power that are released by any good action. You do an action literally here, it has replication, replication effect extraordinary throughout the whole world. It's like a, a little uh, fly, you know, butterfly that affects the whole universe. It is true. This will happen. Anyway, it was not done with that intention. So that was for the story for Congo. So as part of that, also, I worked on, because after the government of Canada, as I was in Africa doing my work with the pygmies and the local people, they saw me doing all this work. So they asked me to work actually for the government of Canada with a very high salary with an organization called CEDA, Canadian International Development Agency, which was an agency that was doing humanitarian work on behalf of Canada outside of Canada. So I worked for them for three and a half years. And during that period, when I started, I saw that there is no fuel for running the trucks and the commercialization of agricultural products. So I suggested that we design a machine that will generate fuel on the go. <laughs> so basically, that is called a gasifier. And gasifiers are now becoming very, the new science is coming up now doing that. But anyway, this gasifier is just a, a kind of container in which you open up on the top of it and you put charcoal or you put anything that can burn that has carbon base and you put it into that uh, machine and that machine creates CO2, carbon dioxide. But then when you put carbon dioxide in contact with charcoal, then the carbon dioxide at 800 degrees C changes into two CO. That means it's carbon monoxide. And carbon monoxide explosive and it replaces fuel, gasoline. So basically, I learned that through a little bit of research and investigation because every time I was coming back to Canada for holidays, I would go to the library and <laughs> learn as much as possible before going back to Africa. So I used my time doing research because I knew that in Africa they have a need. So I didn't have the resources. So during the holiday, I was using that. So basically, I started to build cars that were running on charcoal or anything that burns on the go. So this and, the, and the reason why, too, is because... Like, we're still clearly before, like, mainstream internet. So it's not even like you could have gone to, like, a like a bigger city and just, like, Googled how to be no, able to do this no, or you watch some not. YouTube no, videos. No, no, like, no. you legitimately had to go somewhere where there was libraries That's and right. books and That's study. Right. and Yeah. But this is, you see, inventors get inspiration. And if you are an inventor who is seeking to serve other people... Genuinely, you receive tons of inspiration because your intention are not self-centered. Your intention is how can I make the world a better place? So naturally, the better place come to you. 
helping you. Better universe comes to help you in sustaining the, the progress of humanity. So that was uh, my story about Africa. And as the villagers were expanding and more and more and more development was coming, the United Nations saw me working. And they said, how is that possible? With so little amount of money, so many people are getting so much development. You must come and work for the UN. I said, no, why should I work for the UN? I'm doing fine. The, the work is beautiful and a lot of people are empowered. They insisted, come and come and come for work for the UN. And, and you just kind of glossed over it fairly quickly. And if people didn't pick up on it, you developed a vehicle with an alternative energy source for fuel 30 years ago. That's right. Yeah, like just again, like it, it's mind-boggling. But that gasifiers were actually developed about 50 years ago, 60 years ago, by the German during the Second World War, 1939-1940. They developed gasifiers because, and Sweden is actually was the most advanced on that. Because in Sweden, suddenly, they didn't have access to any energy source. And they improved the technology of gasifiers that were attached to Mercedes-Benz. <laughs> <laughs> so they, they would uh, use that. And they had a the little tra trailer in the back of the, their car, their Mercedes-Benz. And they had the little trailer. And in the trailer, they had this, this kind of container. And they put charcoal. And in the morning, the charcoal, they turn it on, and you few minutes, you heat it up to 800 degrees C, which is just a blower. It becomes blowing, head ready to go. You turn your car, you go, and that's it. So it, it was quite, uh, so the technology, I didn't know much about it. It's only after I had done all this work that I discovered that the Swedish had already done the job. <laughs> so I was not the first inventor doing it, but out of nowhere in the middle of Africa doing it was quite a challenging. It yeah. was challenging. It was not... Uh, because you had to learn all the, the trick by yourself. You, had, you didn't have access to, to education or, I mean, resources that would help you. So you had to imagine, okay, what, how would that work to do that? But that was a blessing uh, that happened. So I that was... That you burned wood and banana peels. Uh, yeah. I think that's so cool. Bananas, um, any um, peanuts, anything, agricultural waste that burns, you put it into that. Yeah. And it runs on rice, husks, on... Uh, and anything that you find on the road, after the charcoal has started to operate, then you have, um, you know, wood, um, wood chips, wood uh, leftover from trees. You cut them down, please put in the container, and you run, and you replace your fuel. So that was um, done. And then after that, then the UN came and said that, why don't you work for the UN? There are eight countries that they are the poorest countries in the world. Please come and work with you. And they said, no, I'm, I'm doing fine here. Finally, they insisted that I work for the UN. So 
I went to Geneva, signed a contract, and decided that I will leave Africa. At the same time, I asked our community whether it was wise for me to leave Africa, because now we have 500 villagers who were all educated, advanced in a certain level of various forms of education. And they said, warmly welcome to Laos. Because I said, one of the eight countries was Laos, which was a strong communist country. And at that time, Laos was exactly like North Korea. They don't want capitalist people. They don't want foreigners to enter the country. It was so tightly controlled and so much oppression inside against the people. It was horrible. And so then I said, okay, I'm going to go to Laos. By the time the UN said, okay, we give you a contract to come to Laos, the moment that I'm ready to go, suddenly a telegram comes and don't come to Laos. The UN says, don't come to Laos. There is kind of conflict and war there. Don't come, no contract. And here I am with two telegrams. One saying, warmly welcome to Laos, and the other one says, don't come to Laos, there is war. So I decided that, follow your heart. So went, left everything in Africa. Now we had a big school we had created. My wife, Monique, and the family, with the children, four children at that time, were all born in the jungles of Africa without hospital. They were born in the middle of the forest with missionary hospitals that were missionary doctors that were passing by by chance. And we asked them to make sure that <laughs> we have uh, support. Um, so at that time, we decided that we will follow our heart. We will move to Laos. Laos was one of the poorest country at that time. So, but when I went to get a visa, we had to go first to Bangkok, Thailand, to get a visa to enter Laos. Laos is a communist country. So when I went to the embassy and said, I want a visa, they said, no, we don't give you a visa. You are a capitalist, you are a Canadian, no way that a Canadian would enter. You are not a diplomatic diplomat. You don't work for any government and you don't work for the UN. You are a private who want to come to Laos. No way. Now I showed them all the pictures of this, so many technology development, so much progress in, in, uh, in Africa. Imagine your country could benefit from all these technologies and this development and all this. No, no, no. We don't want a capitalism in our country. So it was a tough time with four kids. We are at the, in Bangkok. Now we have to find a way. We want to go to Laos. And the government embassy says no. So I said, okay, what we're going to do is that I'm going to go every single day to the embassy, sit down politely and wait. They open 10 o'clock, 10.30, I go there. They close at 3.30, I'm going to sit down. So I did that for three months. <laughs> for three months? Every day? Every day. Except 
weekend. <laughs> it was close. After three months, they got so fed up to see me. They gave me a visa, throw it in my face and said, please don't come back ever again. <laughs> Persistence, right? Persistence. <laughs> so I entered Laos. Now, I entered Laos. Where the UN has specifically told you not to go. That's right. I take it you're a little bit stubborn. That's right. And you go sit in this um, this office for three months at That's the embassy. Right. That's right. And you just to be able to go to where everybody's telling you not to go for your own <laughs> personal safety. No is not an answer. No is just uh, wait. Or we have some. Uh, we have to do something else. Or we have to change the regulation. Or we have to do something. For me, no, is fantastic. But maybe there is a temporary problem there. <laughs> they say no. <laughs> anyway, entered Laos, and then suddenly, they call me and say, "How did you get into the country?" I said, "Well, I have a visa." I said, "Well, where did you get the visa? I got it from your embassy. This is your own visa." How did you get it? Well, I got it. They gave it to me. So finally, they said, I show them what I do. I go to the villages. I build cottage industries in the village level. I gather the people. Unitedly, we develop the village. And they said, wow, that sounds good. So you are going to work with the general of the army and the chief of course spy. <laughs> Of course you are. Like, yeah. seriously. And How about the president, too? Like, <laughs> seriously. Because you are a capitalist. Basically, they are telling you, front that we don't trust you. Mm -hmm. So we give you the general, General Chen, his name was. And we give you the chief spy, anti-spy agency. He's going to work with you. And all the workers are actually... Agent oh. of the, 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 the yeah. system. So basically, I said, you know, I'm here for helping people. So we are going to do it. So I start village after village, village after village, village after village. We go cottage industries, study. We build chalk industries. We build the tiling industry for the roofing of the houses. Um, well, what was it like traveling around to all these villages with the general of the army, the <laughs> top spy of the anti-spy agency, and a bunch of spies posing as workers well, to be able to watch what you're doing? You know, very soon they get tired mm -hmm. because they see that you are really doing development work and you are loving people and people love you. So. Later on, you will see why loving you is a big challenge. But yeah. <laughs> so basically, they, they start to really see that you, you come in a village, within three, four, five months, you have a cottage industry and you have work for people and people are united. Then you go to village after village, you put the seeds at the beginning, you tell them the concept, the idea, look in your village, what resources do you have, what possibilities do you have, what, how, who is the brain, who is the doer, who is the, uh, you know, how can you put resources together and then come together and we'll talk and then we find out a way that if there is a, what is called appropriate technology. This is, by the way, a whole world that, we in the West, we have never explored. There's a whole world called appropriate technology. And there are many books 
about appropriate technology, which is designing rural technology that are very appropriate to the social and economic condition of the local people. So I use this concept of appropriate, which is empowering the local people to address their own needs by themselves and giving the, the tool to empower themselves. So that's basically, and it's part of both technology and human engineering. <laughs> it's technology engineering and human engineering, social engineering. So basically, um, after one year, they called me. And there were many, many villagers who had all kinds of technology that they have developed. And I thought that they are going to say thank you for the first time. <laughs> I was hoping that they would say thank you, not out of ego, but just out of, you know, uh, courtesy. They told me, well, you came a year ago in this country. Why do you have so many friends? You must be a spy of the CIA. How come a capitalist can come in our country, create so many friends, you are into something? I said, well, I'm here for the development of the country and all the work that I have done, you have a record of it. And uh, I did quite a number of projects and uh, I'm here to serve the people. They said, no. It's impossible that somebody comes and help people out of no self-interest. So I said, well, this is my job. That's what I do. They said, no, you are, we give you four weeks, you pack up and you go home. Wow. Oh and you're doing just God. such amazing things for this country and these oh, people and these oh villages. It was just, uh, devastating because now we have developed so much help and relationship with people we love people people love us but now the government says no you how cannot. many villages do you think that he has changed in laos maybe at that time about 20 30 villages because we couldn't do mass training the community okay, system you were only there for a year that's right <laughs> There's something called Sohail time. Nobody <laughs> works on Sohail time. <laughs> yeah, but like when you say like only 20, you, you, you forever change the course of 20 or 30 villages in a country. Because you give them concept. You give no, them training a, of the year, training. Sohail, in a year. It, you said only 20 or 30 villages <laughs> in a year. Like it... it it again, like I just, yes. I don't even know how to comprehend the information that you comes see, out of your mouth. You have to know one thing. I come from a background in which faith is very important. And when you are connected to people who also are faith of any religion, people who have faith, they work on a different time schedule because it's within them. It's, it's kind of an energy that is motivating you. It's an engine inside you that motivates you. It's not, not an outside force. It's an inner force. When you talk language of faith, 
you are releasing this inner potential in you. And then people rise up. Things that they would never do before. When you see that it's based on honest, truthful activity that will serve you and serve your families, these valley villagers that were so kind of untrusting, they see that you are actually doing. And people communicate, by the way. Farmers communicate with other farmers on a different level. Mm-hmm. You know, they that cannot That is the truth. Fail. I'm a southern Alberta farmer, so I know, I know what that's all about. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. You know, when a farmer talks to another farmer, they talk heart to heart, but also mind to mind. But mm-hmm. they have to survive and they have to support each other. They cannot say lies to each other. So when a farmer gets the benefit of development of their own village, the other village very quickly, they learn very quickly. So when you go there, already they, they know that you are coming. Yeah. You see what I'm saying? And if you happen to actually stop by in the village and say that, oh, be ready. After this village is your turn. And then you do 20 village at one time. You travel and you tell them, be ready. You want to do, prepare yourself. Because after this experiment is done, if it's successful, you can replicate it by yourself. Nobody well, how, else will do it How for amazing you. is it to be able to get to these villages and see that they're just waiting for you to get there? Yes. It, you know, it, when you say, like, get ready, I'm coming. This is the force, feel the energy, like, and the excitement created within the country and these exactly. communities. And then, like, you show up and they're just waiting. That's right. Well, you know, we have Elon Musk who says something and many people say, oh, I want to, to do that. The same thing in a country in which you are the only foreigner who is not working for the UN and who is not working for an embassy, then you are very visible. And everybody is watching this foreigner who comes in that country who does all this work. Eventually, so basically they said you have to leave the country. You have four weeks of visa and that's it. They seize all my property, all my money, bank account. Everything is taken away. Now, we, we lived in a house that we were renting. They say that the landlady, she's very afraid because now the police, you see, just to give you an idea of how the country would work. They had scooters, motorcycle with side scooter, you know, the side... Little sidecar? Sidecar. And in the sidecar, they had radar. You had no permission in 18... in 1989. In in 1989, when we went there, you had no permission to watch TV. Wow. The only, they had one channel, which was the Laotian channel. Yeah. You were not allowed to watch the channel of other countries. If they catch you, you are in jail. Yeah. You are not allowed to have a fax machine. So that was the, the repression mm-hmm. and the level of, Control. Well, you, yeah, you keep control of the narrative, of, right? Of, when you don't even allow any other narrative. But then, like, you, you also have to even think, like, you know, like, when, when a country, like, existentially, like, controls the narrative to, like, to that degree, but then they have somebody coming in who completely challenges 
like everything that these people are indoctrinated with. Like, you know, we're like you wouldn't even be used to the concept like but then people would be like they'd be starving for it because we as human beings just connect with that message wholeheartedly mm -hmm. but then they you think these these villagers and these people would just be questioning like their their political systems and, and everything to a degree that they probably never even thought that they would before that that's right that's right they were experiencing it because they were part of it they were how do you say their ideas were welcome and that idea their ideas were becoming a reality because they will build that reality but that empowerment to transform the idea into action was missing we all have ideas but we don't know how to bring it into action so by having these experiences of how putting things together and these technologies together and how to bring people with knowledge experience and so on it, it would so anyway, so basically I had four weeks to close down everything. Now, we didn't have food anymore in the house with four kids because they cut us everything. And people were not allowed because the police was controlling the area that we lived because they wanted us to move out of the country. Now, this is for somebody who has served the country to such level. You can see the repression level. <laughs> now, imagine if somebody was doing something bad. But anyway. And that's the thing. Now you're feeling like that, that real control that this, this government has over its people right, and the repression right. that they bestow yeah, upon their right. citizens. The doors of every shop was half closed, half open. Everything was half down, half up, and they had no written laws. So basically, anybody can blame you on anything at any time that you have broken a law. You don't know which law because the law was not written. You had no clue that you have broken the law, and they will arrest you, and they would put so easily anybody in jail for almost nothing. And it was so difficult. How scary is that? You know, like it just, you know, like we, we see some social justice movements nowadays kind of operating in that same form where like, you know, people don't realize like the repercussion of the words that come out of their mouth. And you know, like, it, and that would be like a real hard example of that, is that if, if you just kind of slightly rub somebody the wrong way one time, oh, wow. you could be in a oh. louse jail Absolutely. and you would never leave that place. That, that's right. That's right. So it wow. was just a, an environment in which we had to move very carefully, control every word. And, but at the same time, you are trying to empower them to develop beyond where they are. So at that time, some family friends that we had came to us and say Sohail and Monique and the kid there is an abandoned house ghost and spirit they live in that house and nobody dares to go close that house you have nowhere else to go why don't you go and rent that ghost house at the beginning it sounded crazy we said, yeah, well, why why not? I'm very curious always to, to go and check things. <laughs> so we go, and it's just next to the American embassy. 
the most beautiful spot of the country. <laughs> I mean, in that capital city of Vientiane. And then, that there is that beautiful colonial house, beautiful tropical garden with a tiny little swimming pool, water. And I look at this house, it's so beautiful. But for 13 years, it has been abandoned. Animals live inside the house because for 13 years, you know, the bats are there, the uh, cats and dogs and everything, and the, the, the house has been abandoned. So there are strange noises in the house. But then the landlady, we find her, and she lived in another house. And she says, my husband died inside the house. And since then, every night he's shouting inside the house. And nobody dares to go close to that house. It's really haunted. So they said, I said, what? I want to look at it. So, okay, they opened the door, clack, clack, clack. The, the, the windows have never been opened, you know, the curtain, everything. We look at it and we see, wow, this house, the water is coming, you know, the electricity is not working and things are not really, you know, it's 13 years abandoned and the, the roof was not properly. <laughs> anyway, it was in a mess. mess. Uh, but we look at the land, we look at the property, we look at the house with location, we look at everything, 13 rooms. Oh my God, this is an amazing house. So suddenly, my wife and I, we look at each other and say, okay, we'll buy it. And we're shocked ourselves that we say we'll buy it because we have no visa. There are policies behind us. We have no money. How? Because they have taken all our properties, everything. So, and in the course of your life, this is the second time that everything has been taken away from you because everything got taken away from your family when you guys left Iran when you were in that's Switzerland. Right. That's right. That's right. That's right. Strongly, okay. you know, the, the power of... Anyway, so then they... So we moved into the house... Oh, the lady said, oh, yes, I know you. You are doing all this development in, in the country. We trust you. You have no money. Don't worry. You pay later. Okay. So we sign a contract. Sale. At that time, foreigners did not have the right to have a property. But she says, I trust you. I, I sell you my property. Here's the document. You take it. Later on, you figure out how you, you get ownership. So, okay. At that time, we pitch a tent inside the house <laughs> so that the kids are safe at night and they can sleep. And then slowly and slowly, and we had a maid that was always with us for the children. She hears the noise at night and she runs away and never show up after that. So here... The only people that were local helping us, we lost them. So now we have a house. We have no food. <laughs> we have four kids. We're in a house that has needs a lot of repair. 
and and we have the police on guard outside how do we overcome that <laughs> well very soon um, we came to the conclusion that we needed higher power <laughs> so we needed prayers and meditation and coming to grip whether we should stay in the country or leave the country because children should not suffer we parents adults we opted to do sacrifices but the children it's not their lot they should be get the best the role of a child is to play is to have the joy to have the thing until they are standing on their own feet but they should not be suffering because of us so basically we said we're going to say some prayers and after that the prayers will make a decision so we sat down and we had some beautiful Baha'i books that we were holy writings and prayers so we start to read these beautiful prayers to inspire ourselves and get energy power guidance some sort something God tell us where are we going <laughs> an inspiration and you would not believe we opened one of the books and there was a beautiful beautiful writings and in the writing it said have faith trust and beautiful beautiful how challenges appear in life but how we have to stand beyond them rise above them overcome them through love and service and many things that we can offer to the world we get so inspired by this writing that suddenly we forget all our fears are gone everything that we kind of doubted is gone so much so that we decide that we'll make a shopping list and we will write to God and ask him everything everything that we need so we take paper and we make a long long shopping list <laughs> it comes to $36,000 US and we don't have a penny left because everything was taken and we are in that joyful mood we don't know how this miracle can happen or anything will happen we have no clue but we have the joy in our heart that we are going to be taken care of we know that there is a power if he wants us to stay we stay if he doesn't want us to stay we just leave but we will get inspiration will be will know what to do within two three hours of that joyful mode thinking inspiration there was inside the house a kind of telephone in which it had a handle at that time this is 1989-1990-1990-91 that area and the telephone had a handle and then the post office because we are the only foreigner who were not embassy related or 
UNE related, everybody knew who we were and where we lived. Everybody followed. It's a small country. So then the post office calls that number that we are in the house. Gling, 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 gling. She says something is ringing somewhere. <laughs> and then we knew that there is a telephone. We, op we listen, and it says that the Asian Development Bank, which is like the World Bank, the Asian Development Bank, mm -hmm. this is for Asia, they say they have a message for you. Your um, proposal for a project has been approved and you get $47,000 thinking what project what and I remember six months earlier because Laos Vietnam and America had war mm -hmm. and Laos was the country in which all the armaments of American will be landed and the bombs and out of Laos, they will go and bomb Vietnam. And then they will come back to Laos. So Laos was where the, all the army equipments were laying or broken. Or, and at that time, also the Soviet <laughs> equipment were also there. So as I was traveling, I saw so many army equipment in the country. So when I heard that the Asian Development Bank and the World Bank, they wanted to build all the roads of Laos. So I suggested that I'm going to take all this army equipment, cut them into pieces, redesign them, weld them again, paint them, and make machinery for construction of roads. So I made sketches and design, and I had sent them that to the Asian Development Bank. Six months later, on that day, we were praying. Three, four hours later, the telephone had rang. And they say, your project that you offered six months ago has been approved. And you come at the UN office and you get $47,000. We could have not imagined that such a thing could happen. So I went, I found the file, and I saw that there was exactly $36,000 of profit. I mean, money that will be left to us. But because it was all broken metal that you cut, so you get it at very, very cheap. And then you weld it together, you paint it, and you get beautiful, heavy-duty, strong steel, <laughs> the best steel in the world, equipment that will last and the people will build it themselves. It's not like an equipment that you import when the electronic or the mechanical part breaks down. People don't know what spare parts they have to use or what how to repair it. But when they build it themselves, they will be able to maintain it. They will be able to repair it. They produce it. I will teach them how to do it. Once they do the first one, then they can do it, all of it. And so basically, I go to the UN office. They give me a check, $47,000. So I go to the border 
in Thailand, change the money, cash, bring it back, because I still had the visa that was left for one or two weeks left. And I come back and I say, oh my God, now I have the money. Now I have to go and build a factory and start to collect all this army equipment. The police is still behind me. <laughs> How am I going to do that? So I said to myself, okay, they have seen me doing all this work and they saw that I'm doing it out of goodwill. So I'm going to go and hire people. And if the police come and stop me, then I know that maybe I'm in big trouble. So I go and contact some people and say, do you want to work for me? Of course, they are mostly jobless, 99% joblessness and employment. So everybody wants to work, everybody's looking for a job. So basically I go and hire a group of people and we go to a building. I had some ideas. So, but I see that the police does not stop me. And I'm surprised. I said, why they are not stopping me? Then on that day, the wall of Berlin had fallen down. The communist system in Europe had fallen down. And that's why the government now was going to change. And instead of chasing out the capitalist people, now they are seeking capitalist people to come and develop the country. So that day was the day that I received the money and I build the factory and we build many 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 equipment that are <laughs> that were built and this um, so i adopted a method called toad graders toad means that you are building a, an equipment that looks like a grader and then that equipment uh, has you attach it to a tractor most people knew how to use tractors most people knew how to use um, because tractors have been used for for long long time so if uh, we build equipment that the people can These are all I'm showing here, the equipment that we built in, uh, in Laos that are now becoming, that were used to build many, many of the roads that have been produced in, in Laos now. So you've built roads in Laos? With this equipment. Basically, we, we sold this, this equipment to the, the the government who would build their own roads and so that was part of the i have many pictures somewhere but where i was going with that is that you you opened up this factory and built this equipment and this is after you've already like educated and liberated all these citizens in in these villages um and now like like you're building roadways you've you've given electricity in the congo like 
like the impact you've had around the world is just staggering. So this, uh, for example, this was a tank. Mm. And now it has become a compactor. This is a picture that uh, shows how the wheels of the army equipment are used as compactor for making the roads. Uh, this machine is a toad grader in which the blade is using to flatten the road during the construction. Uh, those are parts and pieces that were all taken from army equipment and uh, put back into a different shape so that they can do the function that they are supposed to do. So, so you ended up staying in Laos for six more years, right? Yeah, and then so stayed for six more years in the country. The and uh, here is, for example, images of the toad grader. That uh, is uh, so. Basically, the beauty about um, toad equipment from tractors is that you use a tractor that the farmers are very familiar with so they can repair their own tractors and so on, but now they attach all the equipment that they need to make the roads, for making agriculture, for making uh, uh, repairs, maintenance, and well, everything. You don't, need, you don't need two engines, That's so there's right. less service, exactly. less, you know, less parts to go wrong, exactly. you know, like anything that's on this besides like, you know, these hoses and fittings, like, you know, even like the hydraulic rams are, you know, obviously pretty industrial coming off, um, you know, as military equipment, that's but right. they're, they're just massive chunks of steel. That's right. That's right. You know, like there, there's, there's not a lot that you would even have to service on one of these. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. So basically all these equipment were built and also at the same time, we were also building small hydropower stations. <laughs> and that's another story that is so strange that I cannot imagine, uh, which actually prompted my uh, expel or intent to expel me from the country. And later on, I wondered why they want to expel me from the country. Well, especially now after this time, you've been here for years in the country now. Well, no, that was yeah, the first year. Oh, the this first was the time. first year? Oh, okay. The reason is that I had taught the people of the government how to build water turbine and electrify their villages. So they had built a water turbine that they were installing on one of the places. And uh, so after one year, when they called me, to leave the country, and I wondered why they want to, me to leave the country. Then one day I went to the UN office when I was going to get the money for the other project, and I saw the picture of my turbine that received international award. Oh, I, yeah. And I said, oh, so exciting. My technology has a word, word and a word. The man at the UN says, your technology? I said, 
I am the one who designed and built that machine. They said, no, no, no. It's one of the agent of the government who has built that machine. Mm. And he is the winner of, and he's right now going to Italy to get the prize. I said, oh my God, now I see why they're expelling me out of the country. Yeah. <laughs> so it was intellectual property. <laughs> Kept it, well, it. there's probably no patents that you can apply for no, in Laos in those days, I, right? I was happy to be there to, to be of service, but then I, I understood why I had to be expelled <laughs> because they didn't want to have anybody coming back and claiming that the technology had been taken. But nonetheless, uh, life continued. And um, so after that, we stayed for six more years and developed many, many, many technologies for roads, for agriculture, for education, for everything. And then I built uh, special equipment for making the schools that uh, are kind of blocks of cement that people uh, train the villagers to build. And then the, the World Bank used that to build 400 schools. So the World Bank used it to build 400 <laughs> schools? 400 schools. They used the technology to build schools. Um, was it's, this the interlocking? It's the interlocking blocks. But this is because it was a long time ago. So it was still novel. Today, everybody knows about it. But uh, at that time, it was kind of novel to have a system that interlocks here. So it was a... A kind of let me see where is the top, where is the bottom. Ah, yeah. So you see the roof here, mm -hmm. and then you see the blocks of cement, and then the classrooms, and then the the the. So anyway, it was an interlocking system. So anyway, then many development uh, stories happened after that, and so we stayed for total seven years in Laos. So that was the story of Laos. And after that, came back to Canada. And unfortunately, um, my first wife, uh, she, we discovered when we came back to Canada that she had cancer. And uh, she passed away. After three years, we tried everything. And uh, so she passed away. And um, so, after that, um, I don't. I don't mean to cut you off. Yes. There, like, um, but I would love to hear more about like, because obviously this is like another huge shift. Um, but we're out of time. We've been at this for like almost four hours. I know. So we have to stop here. Well, I so just. I think we just need to like to pause here and like this. Obviously, gives just like like i you will have to edit <laughs> i will not I, i'm not going to edit a second of this video. like i i i don't i i i i'm so never lost for words but i i don't even know how you're sitting in this chair across from me right now like i i'm it, it doesn't even seem humanly possible to do what you've done on one of these occasions. But like, 
you've I, I, when when people listen to it, they're gonna understand. And like anybody who knows me knows that there's there's probably been one other time in my life when I've been speechless, and I don't even know what to say. And like and again, like we're just we're we're scratching the surface of your journey through life. Like, are we number two on the <laughs> list of the six things? Or where three. are we at? Maybe three. Run. <laughs> no, we're on three of six. So that's the point. Like, but like it, it it's it's jaw dry. Like I, you gotta understand. You have to know. Like he clearly doesn't understand. Like you have to know. Like it, it's mind boggling. So like, I know you're a man of faith, and this connects back with like who you are and how you've lived your life. But like you have this abstract view of what you've done and because you live your life for your fellow men it, it it completely takes away the magnitude of your accomplishment like i like i know you understand what you've done but like there's there's no emotional connection to like the magnitude of you've you've changed the world so hell you you they're like people think they have people want to people dream about it but you have and you haven't just in one place you you have in the even for somebody to say that they've changed the world in like a region of this world but you've done it in several different regions of this world and we're not even done capturing this story yet and you have changed the world. Like when people say they've changed the world, they, it's such a, a, a micro level to even the concept that you've deployed and you're so jovial about it. Like it, it just, it, it fills your heart with such love and, and such joy. Like you can, like you walk your walk so incredibly authentically. Like, like they, they just, like people are gonna get like that you, you can't even explain what you've done with your life and you're not like you're not even done yet and this is only this life like it, it it's you know it's staggering as I said, it, it it is it's not it's everybody i truly sincerely believe that we have been given all of us a gift okay i'm gonna cut you off because i agree with you and like the i know you probably don't know like the mission statement behind like we are i but this mission statement behind we are i is taking individuals off the pedestal and reuniting us all as being one and equal essentially is like the missions like like we are all the same we have the same ability to be able to accomplish anything because I the one thing that irritates me in my life is when people put me on a, a pedestal of any kind of a success that they attach me to because I really don't feel like I do anything like extraordinary and like what I feel is extraordinary is just simply moving my body or like something along those lines. Like you have legitimately done extraordinary things with your life. But like we all have the ability the, the point is, is that People don't, and they aren't, and you have. 
And even when people make the choice to do that, it's not even remotely close to the impact that you've had. Like, and it can't be for everybody. Like you are the outlier of outliers. There's like, like maybe two or three of you ever that comes across in like a generation of human beings in the entire world. And rightfully so, because not everybody can walk that walk or fill those shoes. And there's just not the space or the bandwidth if everybody was like that. But you are the, like, you are the pinnacle of that person. You are like, it just, there, there's a, a, uh, like, I don't even know. Like, like, I and I know when people listen to us, they will absolutely wholeheartedly agree that like, there's just you lead it. Like, you you lead it with such authority and authenticity that like it can't be challenged. Like, like there's just, like people just sit and they just listen because you have no choice. Like, and like, you don't you don't deserve to do anything but listen. And then. After people are incredibly inspired by your journey, if they could accomplish a millionth of what they have, it would still have huge impact in other people's lives. Absolutely, absolutely. And that's the reason why I, I came here yeah. to, to share. Because I think that we all impact each other and we all need each other. We need to help each other. We, we are transforming the love people actually we come we are uh, integrating each other's life into something much bigger than ourselves and uh, that's why i feel that sharing the stories at the beginning i did not want to share the stories because i thought that everything that i say and i have done look to myself almost impossible and i look at it and say that why did it become possible because I realized I didn't do it. There are other forces that come into your life and help you to accomplish your dreams or your vision or your desires if they are well-placed. So I realized that this is not me. I'm just an instrument for accomplishing what was asked of me to do. So it's much of the work is a desire. You step in into the field of service and you are more than bountifully <laughs> you know blessed by the i would say recompense i don't know by the reward that you receive from from that and the reward is seeing happy smile happy people people who have work to do families that are rising up and later on we'll talk about the benefit the health benefit of our latest technology invention, which is about spirulina, the effect that it has on the life of people, why we are doing it for the last 10 years, and uh, so how it has affected. This is when you see the smile and you see that these people who could not work anymore, now they are back to work and their life is again back into normal. That is my happiness. That gives us, both Susan and I, the energy and the willingness to carry on despite the challenges, despite of the difficulties. We said that, no, this is our destiny. Who said that life was going to be easy? 
who <laughs> said that life was going to be not full of challenge. <laughs> it's full of challenge and challenges will come and come and come and come until the, the apple is ripe and leaves the tree mm -hmm. naturally and beautifully and gracefully. The same thing. We are all here fruit and we have to mature. And then when it's mature, we will <laughs> leave yeah. the tree and that's it. That's the story of life. And all of us, we, we have this capacity. So I'm not taking it. I know it it's, could be a compliment, but I take it more as a, a blessing that came because we decided to serve. And service is the greatest of every, you know, it's, it's a proof of love. If you do something as a service, this shows that you have the love. You can talk about love, you can make poem, poetry, literature, whatever, but at the very end is what you do with it. That's the service part. Absolutely. Well, we'll wrap this one. And we, we talked about this being like a four or five part series. And obviously I know now like how true that's going to be. So um, again, you know, Soil Susan, I really thank you guys for coming on the show. And I look forward to the multiple more hours that hopefully you guys will grace me with um, to be able to say like it just again, like I, like I, I want words to come out of my mouth, but I just I have none. So thank you guys. Thank you so yeah, much for inviting us. It's such a pleasure to to be in contact with your audience and to be part of something and building together this beautiful world, the blue planet that we live in. And we, we Susan and I, we are very committed to make the world a better place and um, bring love and unity and friendship. And um, if our presence, if our action can contribute to, to bringing at least some warmth and joy and something. So hope, my hope is that we have brought hope that human beings were very, very gifted by the creator and he loved us and he created us out of love and now it's time to serve. And that's the re return of the blessing, the thanksgiving that we can give in return for the blessing of life is serve others. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Thank you.